discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable. Coming to you from Beijing, I'm He Yang. Good to have you join us. Several Chinese provincial governments have scrapped the long-standing upper age limit of 35 years old in the recruitment of civil servants. This month, 40 is the new 35 for new civil servant recruits. What does this policy shift say about employment and demographic realities of our society? And there are websites, apps, and corners on the internet which enables one to rate their physical attractiveness. Why would people participate? For today's program, I'm joined by Yushun in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. First on today's show, 35 years old has long been the cutoff age for the recruitment of civil servants for most positions in this country. The hiring season of government jobs is in full swing, and an amendment to this age rule has generated a hot discussion on age and employment across industries. People are calling for more opportunities and fairer treatment in the workplace for job seekers aged over 35. What is the consideration behind the removal of the age threshold of 35 on civil servant? Jobs. Yeah, we can totally see that there are some new changes in this year's recruitment of civil servants. Compared with 2022, the ratio of enrollment expansion in many provinces exceeded 50 percent, and the age threshold of 35 years old and below, which has been applied in previous years, has been loosened in many places. For example, Henan pointed out in the provincial examination announcement that. Except for positions with special requirements on age, the general age limit for 2023 master and doctoral students is relaxed to 40 years old. And in Jiangxi Province, the age limit for doctoral candidates and those applying for positions in public institutions in towns can be up to 40 years old. And some regions even loosened the application eligibility. For instance, Yunnan Province rolled out measures such as lowering education requirements. Relaxing professional requirements, not discriminating based on working years and experience, and separately lowering the passing score in written examinations for positions recruiting in remote areas. So I think with these changes, more people will be qualified to apply for the exam, which can give aspiring young talents the opportunity to show their strength and abilities in written tests and interviews. And、um, frontrunners are prioritized for admission, so some talents can be protected from being hidden due to the age thresholds. Right. Previously, they may have been overlooked, but now they're eligible to take this big examination, and that is the stepping stone to being employed by the government. So, Josh, when you first saw this、mm. piece of news,、um, any questions, thoughts? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, I have. Quite a lot of questions, actually.、Go、I think、ahead. I have more questions than comments. I mean, I wonder why it is that it's so necessary to have this age limit, and also I wonder if maybe is the reason for this because our definitions of civil service can be quite different,、mm. and I think that that's quite important, right, to actually define what a civil servant is because you could literally just define it as somebody who works for the civil service, but What is the civil service in my own country? A civil servant is technically somebody who's employed 
by the crown. It still sounds so strange, right? But actually, we're still <laughs> technically a constitutional monarchy. So mm. technically, you're employed by the quote unquote crown and you have to fulfill the same role on a national level that the state fulfills um, in an international plane. So um, and this but this can be very, very broad. And we have no upper age limit, actually, in my own country. Um, to become eligible to be a civil servant, you just have to be a UK national. So you have to be um, of that country's nationality. Um, and and that's about it, really. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy, mm -hmm. but even for an apprenticeship level, um, any age is able to apply. So yeah, that's my first question is, where, where do these age limits come from exactly? What, why are they there? Mm. Well, before we try to answer a question, are there no mm. written tests or like stringent yeah. interviews or, you know, background checks and a whole bunch of the procedural stuff that take place to before becoming a civil servant in your country? There absolutely are. Right. There, there is quite a standardized exam, actually, to get into the civil service in the United Kingdom. It's a written exam. And then there are interviews, of course, afterwards, the contents of which is... Um, it's quite varied, actually. Uh, it tests you on on a number of things. Um, and then once you pass the initial exam, then, um, of course, you may be placed into a specific area of the civil service. It depends whether you're going in from the very beginning as an apprentice or um, under some sort of scholarship or something like this, uh, or if you're maybe going in later on after already having some sort of expertise. Right. Well, the procedural aspect of things sound quite similar to what goes on here in China. And of course, because we are a country of a huge population, and then you're talking about millions or tens of millions sometimes of people trying to get into all these jobs at different levels of government in this country. Um, Yushun, could you help out to answer Josh's question of, you know, the purpose of having these age limits in the first place? when applying for government jobs. Yes, actually, to be honest, when you're thinking uh, this kind of examination as a application to a job, then I think that's quite understandable, right? When you are seeking a job, there are absolutely going to be some job requirements. And being aged under 35 is quite normal for a job requirements, right? If it's a normal job in the job market. And um, I think that is why people are confusing is that it's just taking an exam and why you're limiting the age who taking that exam. So I think it is time to change these kind of, um, you know, stereotyping and um, discrimination on age. And um, of course, I think we saw a population decline in China in 2022, right? And um, I think this is also trying to against the backdrop of declining demographic dividends and the aging population and the unbalanced regional development. And um, I think it is a general trend to gradually relax restrictions on talent recruitment. Well, there are some interesting considerations behind a policy. One could be for the fact that China is so huge with so many people and um, you need to set up these kind of requirements just so that you can sift through maybe the massive amounts of applications. And I think in a way, this kind of thinking is similar just to any big company that is looking to hire new people, if your company is 
renowned, offers good benefits, and then people really want to work for you, then this company can't afford to set really high requirements. Mm. And well, that's one thing. And also, there might be this unspoken and underlying understanding of some sort that you want energetic and um, capable people and a sort of you may argue this could be biased but there is or there has been this understanding of before a certain age people are possibly more attuned to change or are able to learn on the job faster or be connected with maybe a younger demographic better or whatnot and these things might be useful for a civil servant yes and also i think the age limit of 35 years old is quite tricky you know because um i think it's also in line with the current trend of talent cultivation we know that in many regions in china if you are graduated or decided to work in such province, you can get a certain amount of subsidies offered by the government. So I think the relax on the age limit of taking such kind of exams for a civil servant or other exams is also for talent cultivation, but from another direction. Because many people's graduation age is close to or even above 30 years old, especially for those candidates with doctoral degrees, right? Some of them after their graduation, they have already like 32 years old. So after a few years of hard work, they soon reach the threshold of 35 years old. And then if the age requirement is too rigid, it will block the way for this demographic to take part in the civil servant examination. And it is also a kind of waste of human resources. Certainly it's inviting a bigger talent pool, more people of you know, from 35 to 40 years old now, if you're eligible, you can apply for the government job, join the public service as such. Josh, do you think that setting an upper age limit of 35, 40, or 50, or whatever it is, does it count as a form of age discrimination in employment? Of course it does. I mean, that is the definition of discrimination, isn't it? Is it it's to make a decision about somebody um, purely based on something that they cannot help. Right. So things that you cannot help are, for example, your gender, your race, your age. Right. So, of course, it's a type of discrimination. But let's be honest, there's discrimination everywhere in the world. And I guess that in this case, it might be argued that this type of discrimination is necessary just because of, as you mentioned, the amount of applicants that they may receive. Presumably, they receive too many applicants if they have to have this age limit, and maybe they're not getting enough now that they've raised it. I don't know what the decision is based on. Maybe it's because people are living longer and that people are deciding to change careers later in life. Who knows? Um, but yeah, I think for me anyway, very coldly yes it is a form of discrimination but whether that discrimination is necessary or not is another question um i i, I wouldn't speculate as to whether it's uh, necessary or not because i don't know the amounts of people that are actually applying to have this job yes and um if it's in the private sector from the perspective of the companies 
Of course, they would like to maximize their profits and um, hiring a younger, more energetic young people. It's absolutely more value for money than hiring a 35 years old employee. But 35 is absolutely not age to worry about these kind of things. You know, people aged around 35, it's quite young, I think. And um, what's more important is that they are more experienced at this age. And um, I think that is the valuable point when they are trying to upper the age limit in this case. Hmm. Well, since you've brought it up, 35 has somehow become a sensitive age number in recent years. Um, it first started with the tech world when yeah. um, there were no official confirmation, but there was all this chattering about when you're 35, then you're no longer valuable to the company. And then for a lot of tech jobs, it requires gruesomely long working hours. And for years, people hated it. So I think in recent years, we've seen that there's a lot of discussion about the age of 35. And it just does not quiet any qualms because just think of so many people who are above the age of 35 right like now it's just a very different sense of job security for people what about 40 45 50 or you know every five years that's added to your age it just makes people kind of feel what does this mean for my career or my job security as such so i like to give a little bit more attention to this so-called 35 phenomenon. What do you think about our economy, uh, public sector, as well as private sector, that makes, you know, this, it's pre-middle age, but it is a age that makes employers almost reassess one's value to the company or the organization? I think that this quote-unquote phenomenon can change and will change. Um, I, I wonder what it is. I, I mean, I know now that you're constantly hearing this um, 30 is the new 20 or 40 is the new 30, right? It becomes a bit of a tiresome cliche to hear this phrase over and over again. But there is some truth in this. And I guess that you can trace this to a lot of things. It depends how deep you want to go with this, right? I mean, you could literally go to the fact that people are living longer, people are working longer, people are generally the world over in better health than they were say 50 years ago or so people are getting married later people are staying consequently staying single for longer focusing on their careers more um does this mean that people are also being more active and are able to be more active in their career shifts because of all these things i imagine so so i'm not sure if it's any kind of sort of spooky phenomenon uh, for me personally it just seems like a sort of natural thing that is a consequence of us maybe doing things everything a little bit later in life than we were 50 years ago or so hmm. that's my take on it okay well what you just said josh i think dovetails with what the chinese civil service is trying to do here that is you know pushing back the upper limit of the age of job applicants to 40. But the way that a lot of Chinese people see the phenomenon of 35 is that as if your anxiety of being replaced has been moved up. 
So from the previous 40, 45, 50, or whatever number it was, to a very young age of 35. And that is the unnerving bit. And that could possibly be a phenomenon that is on the change. Because now we do see that there is major demographic change happening in China that the huge population is no longer growing like what it used to be. So yeah, I'm I'm very curious to hear what you have to say here. But the thing is, um, I think you need to solve the problem from the root, you know. Of course, we see that the existing anxiety of people around 35. But yeah, of course, many firms prefer young and energetic graduates because they are both cheaper to employ and they have a longer career lifespan ahead of them compared with these older job applicants who... You know, they expect higher pay and tend to be less physically active and are more inclined to strive for work-life balance and to request parental leave upon having children. These are all the realities they will face when they're aging around 35. But the thing is that we need to solve this problem and um, let them be more active in the job <laughs> market. Because if you are not solving this problem, maybe we'll have... A 40 phenomenon, a 55 phenomenon, right? You are not solving this problem. Well, it's interesting that you say that it's a problem because I'd be careful with that. Isn't it good to like try to get people to want to have babies, to want to live a family life at 35 or whatnot of that age, just so that, you know, people are are handling different aspects of life, not just focusing on work. So it's really interesting, like what is what is going on right now? Because I think these demographic trends, they do affect like these different aspects of society, of the economy and, and so many things. And you shouldn't, I think you're absolutely spot on in um, pinpointing on the fact that when somebody has joined the workforce for maybe 10 years or so, like in their in their mid 30s or late 30s or whatnot, um, their perspective and also outlook on work might have changed. It might be very different from what a 20 something year old is looking at all of this. And also for employers, usually it does mean that you probably need to pay people with 10 plus years experience a bit more than entry-level employees. And that is a clever calculation that every employer is going to think about. And also, it's kind of brutal to feel that it feels like everybody's kind of like meat on the chopping block as some sort. And, um, and you're being assessed of your value to the organization. And in the private sector, actually, it can be a little bit more straightforward and even more, in a way, brutal for people. And let's see. So Josh, do you have some thoughts about the possible like obstacles that exist in combating the ageism that we see in the uh, workplace and ways to address these issues? Well, I think sadly, or maybe not sadly, but in reality, the only way to really address an issue of age discrimination, if that's what we're talking about here, is to have laws and policies in place that do protect um, people from that. And for example, that's not having to disclose your age on applications, for example, when it comes to being granted an interview or something like that. 
Um, and of course, there are certain jobs where you do have to, or one may argue, I mean, I think that there probably are some jobs where you do, uh, it makes sense to have some age limitations, whether it's a minimum or maximum age limit. Um, but generally speaking, I think it comes with the start process whereby you hand in your resume or your CV, right? And then you're granted an interview. And I don't think that employers should be allowed to ask for your age on those papers. Now, there is no real way to stop discrimination. It's very hard to stop discrimination because when it comes to the actual hiring process, right, it's very, very difficult uh, to stop, uh, to enforce any employees, employers, sorry, to hire somebody. There is um, something called positive discrimination, which exists. This is quite common in my own country where companies have to meet quotas to hire mm -hmm. people who are, for example, over a certain age uh, with a disability of some sort of minority minority group in society. So this is one concept which I know um, doesn't exist in every country around the world. Um, and it's quite controversial in my own country as well. Um, and this is also another way to deal with it. But really what this all tells us is that it's actually extremely difficult when it comes to the actual hiring part. It's quite difficult to stop this kind of discrimination. Yes, and also I think this kind of issue needs to be solved from the side of recruiters. You know, they have to aware that um, the employee branding is kind of important. And if they have such kind of... Um, supportive policies in this company, it is actually building up an image of this company that it is um, open and has a quite diversified and inclusive corporate culture. And I think that is absolutely beneficial for the company. Is it the same for the government? Well, in my opinion, yes, uh, that is how I feel. I think that it should be the same. I think that employment is employment. And um, I think that these measures generally um, encourage a more diverse and inclusive and more generally healthier work environment. Um, so uh, for everybody who works there, not just those who um, are trying to get the job. Um, so in my opinion, yes, this should exist everywhere in all forms of employment. Actually, to sack people is more difficult than one might think. And there are existing labor laws in this country that protect workers' rights. After a certain number of years of employment, for example, one cannot be given the boot without a severance package, without benefits that have been granted to this particular employee. But when it comes to hiring someone and it's really interesting to sort of look at the individual requirements and try to sense what is the consideration behind these kind of policies and this change in hiring policy of civil servants has also generated a wider discussion about other requirements of hiring for example should employers place less emphasis on the university one graduated from, or this one could argue overemphasis on multiple degrees. So there are many aspects of the hiring process that is worth the discussion. And it's promising to see that these changes are happening, which is also answering to the realities of the talent pool and demographic trends 
of this country. You're listening to Roundtable. We'll be back after this break. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, Ho Young. I'm joined by Yushun in the studio and Josh Cotterell on the line. Coming up, now there's the 21st century version of Mira Mira on the wall, who's the fairest of them all. Websites and apps enable the user to upload selfies to a band of strangers or AI, which will tell you how good looking you are. Why would people put themselves through this? Also, tired of not feeling objectified enough? Relief is on the way on Roundtable. And videos that teach viewers how to ride a high-speed rail and order a meal at McDonald's have attracted millions of views. We discuss these popular videos may have satisfied the unobserved need of more people than you might think. Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. When you're there and you're so inclined, please give us a five-star review. It will help other folks find the show. And keep sending us your voice questions and comments too. EZFMRoundtable at foxmail.com. Emails are fine, but voice memos are even better. However, we recognize that technology doesn't work for everybody, so just get it out to us however you can. Now on Roundtable, as we continue today's discussion. Don't judge a book by its cover. It rings true for people too. Physical appearance is no indication of what a person truly is, but it's easier said than done. Despite increasing awareness of body positivity, how we look remains a source of insecurity for a lot of people. Want the honest opinion about where you fall on the one to ten scale of physical attractiveness from a bunch of strangers or artificial intelligence? There are sites and apps to answer to that prayer. So tell us what's going on and. What is it about people that we look to the internet to seek approval of physical looks? Yes, there are more young people use the internet to seek assessments of their facial appearance. Such service is provided on some online shopping platforms, including Taobao, Xianyu, or Pinduoduo. Customers pay a sum of money and send several pictures of themselves. Then the seller, who promises customers an honest and objective appraisal of their looks, would rate the customer based on his or her appearance, and even provide advice on how to look better. Well, according to these websites, it's not very expensive to do such a test. For example, a Taobao shop with a monthly sales of more than 800 deals charges 3.99 yuan for an 88-word comment, and <laughs> 8.88 yuan. Well, Chinese people just really like eight for a longer evaluation with suggestions on how to improve the customer's look or style and attractiveness. Well, they claim that they are quite objective and professional, but you know when I was seeing this news, and they can even control the number of the words of the comments. So I was wondering, that's a format or something? If they can just comment some people within 88 words, and、um, if that's the case, I think we should consider it is objective or not. Well, whether we can judge whether it's objective or not, I, I think it's 
quite interesting because I think that if we're to take attractiveness to just mean the attention that people give you because of your looks, then actually um, there are objective ways, or at least there are ways to measure this. There's quite a lot of studies about this. There's a lot of studies about what um, holds people's attention for the longest amount of time, where they'll show people different facial types and get people to pick them out of a string of diagrams. So the reality, as scary as it may seem, is that actually we can decipher whether or not people are quote unquote conventionally attractive in that way. But also on top of that, I think that there's many things that these things do not measure, these tests do not measure, that are also incorporated into what it means to be attractive, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of these tests cannot measure, for example, confidence or character. And for a lot of people, these are some of the most, if not the most attractive traits that you can have. There are also many other things that change, fashion trends, what stylish changes and things like this. And maybe some of these things aren't just specifically to do with your physical features, right? And also, although there are some things that tend to be kind of universal or that have stood the test of time when it comes to attractiveness, um, that there are actually trends in physical appearance that come in and out of what's um, considered to be uh, a tre trendy or attractive, right? Um, and also body types and shapes. So I think that on the one side, I'm interested in this technology when I read about this and I think, wow, that's actually quite interesting how they do this. But probably more of me is thinking this is probably more damaging actually and probably not worth your time at all. Right. I think that's the initial instinctive reaction of a lot of people, especially if we've lived on the internet for some time now. And we know to survive the internet, you kind of need dinosaur skin because you just don't know what's coming your way. And even for the most beautiful person, I mean that scores high in conventional beauty could be getting all these trashy comments online. And once it's like putting yourself out there, once you exist in the online world, it's like, well, you got to be tough and there's going to be uh, the good and bad comments. And it could be just it, this internet of uh, landfill sometimes. And that pressure to handle all that stuff is intense and immense. And in the past, it might used to just be, let's say, celebrities and famous people that have to go through this. And now it could just be anybody because you've left a footprint, a digital footprint on the internet. And... In 2021, in the U.S., there was this popular subreddit called Am I Ugly? Um, users post photos of themselves along with a verification photo to show that they actually consent to being in this chat forum. Then commentators rate and review their appearance. Most users added some information about why they were posting and what parts of themselves they feel most insecure about. Ouch. And Am I Ugly had more than 220,000 users in 2021. And 
I saw some comments saying that this is kind of similar to Hot or Not, which was a similar website, an older one, where users rated people's attractiveness based on photos that they submit. So now we see um, AI versions as such, and also the good old-fashioned of having a bunch of strangers rate you. I just don't understand why anybody would put themselves through the ringer like this. Why, why, why? <laughs> well, from the buyer of such kind of service point of view, we can see that some sellers told China Daily that most customers are young people who are worried about their appearance, and some are influenced by videos and photoshopped images of attractive faces, which cause them to fret over their own looks. So I think, especially in this age group of people, they are not quite confident about their appearance, so that they will like get others' judgment or evaluation, quote unquote, for others to rate their appearance. And but I think if you are not confident, and、um, in this case, if they get a bad result, they can be even more. <laughs> Uh, Devastated, yeah, dis and disappointed on、mm -hmm. such kind of things, and also some people assume that strangers, like these kind of、uh, professional commentators, <laughs> they rather than family members and friends, they can provide a more objective appraisal of their looks. But appearance is a subjective matter. Matter, right? Exactly. Even though, yeah, of course, our family members will always think that we are. Good looking every way, and we're probably going to be the best looking person in the world. But <laughs> you need to believe that if they say so.、Um, and some people seek some advice on how to look prettier. So that's that is also one of the reasons that they seek such kind of service. They can get not only rating but also some kind of tips on like makeup or hair dressing or dressing style and other ways to make them more attractive. Josh, do you see this as possibly people seeking a boost in their ego, or you know, they're they're looking for approval in that sense, or is it that maybe this is already a good-looking person or super confident about themselves, and they want some kind of validation as well? So, what do you think is the mindset of people who put themselves through the ringer this way? I think that we're all looking for validation and belonging and being attractive, being considered beautiful by society or by a lot of people as a whole, is for better or for worse, it is a way to be accepted. People do accept you often, and media tells us everywhere that if you're beautiful, if you look good physically, then people are going to like you. They will be. Attracted to you, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that this is actually true. That people do gravitate towards people that are、um, conventionally more physically attractive. So it makes a lot of sense、um, from a very primitive perspective as an animal. It makes a lot of sense because it's almost like a protection thing. If you're considered liked in any way, then you're accepted by a group and you're safe, right, from harm. So I think that this is one reason why we. Really need this, right? And why a lot of people、uh, find this so addictive. I mean, also people make a lot of money from this as well online. If we're going to the extreme of people who actually make a living off of being attractive, then that's the reason that they're doing it. But it can be very toxic, and 
um, really there's no end to it, which is, I, I think, the biggest danger here. And also, I think that, that if you're going on one of these apps to discover whether or not you're attractive, I mean, it does sound quite interesting. I mean, I kind of like to do it myself just to see just to experience the technology, <laughs> I think, more than anything else. But maybe I shouldn't do it because who knows what rabbit hole that that will send me down. Right. But I do understand this. And um, but I also think that there's probably a lot better things you could be doing with your time if you're doing this because you feel very insecure, um, eating healthily, exercising and just spending time with people that you actually like and who respect you is uh, three things that come to mind before this stupid app. <laughs> See, I would never put myself to the test because I'm simply afraid to get hurt. And I think for most people, if you've lived in this world for more than five years, that even I suppose for a five-year-old, you might get a feeling of, are, am I liked or am I not liked? And maybe it doesn't really at that tender age, you might not be able to attribute it to, oh, is it the looks or whatnot? But, you know, if you're being hugged, if you're getting the accolades from parents or teachers or those caregivers around you or whatnot, I think it all affects how we feel. But as an adult or as a person who's, you know, lived for more than five years in this world, don't you kind of already know where you position when it comes to conventional beauty? And if I grew up not really being called, oh, beautiful or whatever it is, and it's okay not to give these outsized, disproportional and misleading comments, and that's fine. And the part I find fascinating in this story is, despite all of this, but people might still want to know a number or want to know that, I mean, it's almost like a confirmation of either, okay, it'd be great if you score 10, but what if you're not a 10 and you're like a two and you're paying to be crushed like that? And that's just the part I don't really understand. <laughs> yes, and there's one thing that a lot of women or some women, I haven't really done the survey, might want to ask our fellow gentlemen out there. That is, for women, the way we're brought up or we're indoctrinated by these societal cues growing up, we might question ourselves about, am I good? Am I attractive? A lot of these little voices come in as questions. But for our fellow male counterparts out there, sometimes, and I don't know if this is true for all of you, and I'm curious to hear what you have to say, you come naturally confident and regardless of how you scale on a one to ten scale of attractiveness you're confident anyway and i think if women were more like that then we'd feel a lot more freer what do you guys think well first of all some of them would say well i'm just so good looking and, and they are so confident in that way and i think most of the guys they just don't care you know what do you think <laughs> what these you know topless 
big belly guys are thinking they just don't care you know they don't care about their appearance they don't care about what others think of them so they don't care about their appearance and they don't care how others judge their appearance so that is part of the reasons and another one is that well i have to say a lot of gentlemen out there just they just so confident in their own way of course um but of course as you said i think Appearance anxiety is, is absolutely existing in China because from statistics, we can see that in 2021, China Youth Daily conducted a survey of more than 2,000 students from higher education institutions nationwide. It found that nearly 60% were worried about their appearance to some extent, and majority rate themselves low. From 1 to 5, about 55% give themselves a 3 in terms of appearance rating considering themselves plain looking and 24% are satisfied about their appearance, giving a four to themselves. Only less than 8% rate themselves five out of five. But isn't that kind of just being honest? Because how many of us are like, you know, a 10 or five out of five, you know? And it's perfectly fine to be what? Okay, so, you know, you're like three out of five or whatever it is, but... And I don't mean this as a joke, but my personality is radiant. And I think that makes a person super attractive. And also kindness, I mean, and, and chivalry, you know, all of this stuff, if it exists in a person, it makes him or her, okay, chivalry would be a, a man, um, to be very attractive. So Josh, um, what do you think about this possible like gender difference in looking? at this as well as um, the overall subject. Yeah, I mean, well, by saying this, I guess you're, you're making the point that possibly the things that people find conventionally attractive in men aren't physical, right? And that oh. they can be something more to do with character because that means that um, you cannot rate it through an app like this, right? I don't know how true this is. I think that this is all changing. I really do. I think that what people find attractive in men and women uh, traditionally is becoming more aligned and more similar. Yeah. Um, and I think that these traits are being swapped and muddled up and exchanged uh, at an increasing rate. I think that's a good thing, personally. Mm. So how can we give ourselves a boost when it comes at looking at our physical attractiveness or our attractiveness overall? What is a better way to handle these little voices? I think the most important thing is that you need to aware that your appearance is given by your mom, is given by nature. It's not decided by yourself. Of course, we can now have more advanced technology that you can change your appearance. But the thing is, everybody is unique in their own way, right? You don't necessarily need to like self-blame yourself and it's not like something like the scores you get from an exam it, it's decided by your hard working but your appearance it cannot be decided by yourself so um that is one thing and another is that i think a more health focused self-care is way more important than only our appearance right um if you are healthy then i think you will be more attractive from inside, but not from the appearance. Well, I think that it's not all on the inside. I think there's a reason why 
we have these apps and stuff. I think the physical appearance is incredibly important as well. Um, and I think that it would be just dishonest to say that we all only care about what's inside. I just don't think that's true. But um, certainly I think the idea of attractiveness and what makes somebody attractive is extremely complex. It's extremely nuanced and it's constantly evolving and changing. And I don't know if any of these apps are ever going to be able to account for such um, difference and such um, constant change. I think when it comes to, in a way, judging yourself, we should not place that power in the hands of anybody or any technology that doesn't deserve it and in, includes yourself. I think we sometimes tend to judge ourselves too much. And and that, if we fall in that vicious cycle, actually, it can be very detrimental. Um, essentially, what I think this topic is about, self-esteem based on appearance is notoriously unstable to the extent that we could be internalizing other people's evaluations of how attractive you are and what you should do to become a more attractive in their eyes. Aren't we risking our self-esteem in a way that is contingent on what other people think rather than, rather than on you and your own acceptance of your own self? And I find that to be where strong self-esteem comes from so well this is how i feel today don't know how i'll feel about it tomorrow but finding being comfortable with ourselves i think is the most important thing here and finding strength in ourselves the way we are i think is possibly a better way to go forward you're listening to roundtable coming up next short videos that serve as a guide to urban survival have gone viral we discuss why after this break Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Yang. I have Josh Cotterell on the line and Yushun in the studio for this discussion. How to travel by high-speed rail for the first time. How to visit the hospital. How to have a meal at a hot pot restaurant. Make up a series of how-to videos that have garnered one vlogger 2 million subscribers a month. On short video platform Douyin, the Chinese version of TikTok, the vlogger Da Gongzai Xiaozhang or working girl Xiaozhang has earned the moniker expert of urban survival for offering a step-by-step -step guide on using urban services in her videos. Yushun, could you explain to us why the buzz? Well, I think what is different is that what she was teaching was those everyday tasks, like you said, like how to take a high-speed railway train and uh, how to see a doctor, how to place an order in McDonald's. Um, a lot of things that you think as ordinary could mean a lot of for someone who are experiencing it for the first time. And um, a lot of are saying that it actually helps them um, for guiding their parents to deal with these daily tasks. And others are saying they 
they are kind of person who lacks this kind of life experience and they actually really need these kind of uh, tutorial for their urban experience. And um, we can see actually a lot of um, these kind of uh, tutorials online. And um, these videos are mostly teaching the older generations. But now Xiao Zhang, she is doing a different thing. And she is expanding the target viewers to a wider group, not by age, but by their urban experience. What do you think, Josh? Yeah, I can understand it. It's quite funny when I hear this um, terminology of urban survival, because when I started to research this before the show, I actually, it came up in English. This term is very interesting because it's a military term, actually. So <laughs> it's about sort of surviving as a soldier in a war-torn city. And I don't think that's what we're talking about nope. here, right? Um, but still, um, I this is not a phenomenon just in China. We have a lot of things like this on social media in the West as well. Um, and there's a lot of YouTube channels actually that uh, have gone really viral that have been around for a few years now that teach people how to live off a small amount of money uh, per day. And as we all know, it's common knowledge that cities like London, which I uh, had the pleasure of living there as a student uh, for too long, I must say, where it is so expensive to live. And some of these videos about how to, most of the urban survival stuff online is more about food and it's sort of how to stay alive rather than how to, you know, do maybe some of these other tasks that you guys have mentioned. But it's definitely a theme and there's definitely a market for this kind of content on social media in the UK, for example, and in Europe and the US as well. Yeah. What I find interesting here is what you think is common knowledge is not common for a different group of people or different folks who have not had the same experience. And what I really appreciate is um, the reaction to the series of videos that we're talking about here. And it's it might be a little bit surprising for some people at first to say, oh, I didn't know that there's actually a viewership for this kind of video. But immediately the reaction after that was, wow, thank you for that. And it's important to sort of um, realize everybody's existence in that sense, because let's face it, not everybody has the same voice or volume, even on the internet, you know. And if you look at the figures here, it really paints the Chinese story. The National Bureau of Statistics say that China has a migrant population of about 376 million people, and most of whom move from the countryside to cities. And according to figures released by the National Civil Aviation Bureau, China has a population of 1 billion who've never taken a plane before, which means for hundreds of millions of people, there will be, or there has been, that first time taking the subway, ordering a burger at McDonald's, or going to see a doctor in a different city. And it can be daunting when you're trying something new and you're new to a place. So I think this is actually a great example of what the internet can do. That is to fulfill the needs of unobserved segments of our population and of people. And it offers help. 
it offers maybe a little bit of warmth to people as well. Because when you're doing this new thing, you'll not feel so nervous because you've already seen a video about it. You're listening to Roundtable. Thank you so much, Yushun and Josh Cotterell for joining the discussion. I'm He Young. We'll see you next time.